Good morning. Good to see you here. Philippians chapter 4. Okay. Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll check on a few verses before then, uh, but that's where we're going to camp out for a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in fr- on the seat in front of you. Uh, this is a little difficult because God continues to lay on my heart for you things that he wants to do in my life. So um, as he does that, uh, I ask him, um, you really want me to teach on that? Um, he says, no, I want you to learn that in front of people. Amen. So, uh, we're going here together. We're going here together. Uh, this is our final week of no normal life series. We're getting back into our act study next week. So excited, but there's so much here. Uh, this is week two of no normal thoughts. If you didn't catch the, uh, the first one, we're building on that, so I'd ask you to check out the podcast, www.gunnisonbethany.com. Uh, go to sermons, you can click on that. You can also subscribe free to the subscription uh, through iTunes uh, and, and get that. Uh, this morning, we need to think about what we think about, okay? Now, this is going to be easy for those of you who do not think much. Wives, this is not a good time to look at your husbands, okay? Uh, Because we're not talking about forgetting your anniversary or leaving the kitchen counter a mess or leaving the seat up. Uh, As important as those things might be, we're talking about something so much more important. We're gonna glance, you don't need to turn there, very quickly at what we are talking about, what Jesus is talking about. It's in Mark, uh, Matthew rather, chapter 22, Verse 37, and a lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks the question, what is the greatest commandment? What is, what is the greatest commandment? Here's what Jesus is saying. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Mind, right, with all our minds. That's what we're talking about because Jesus said, loving Loving me, loving God the Father, loving the Holy Spirit, loving us in the, in the wholeness of your mind is part of the greatest commandment. So we're not playing around. This is important stuff. This is often ignored because the way within the Christian community, the way we sometimes think about it is that our words and our actions are to be directed to God, and that's correct, but our thoughts are our own. And that's not correct because over and over again in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is essentially saying it's all in your head. Okay, if your head and your heart aren't right, even if your actions appear right, you're not together with me, right? You're not walking with me. Because the Pharisees had had their behavior dialed in, white-knuckled, behavior modification. That's not what we preach here. That's not what Jesus preached. He preached heart and mind transformation by the Holy Spirit, by him, and then that's what we're after. So because this is the greatest commandment, um, and, and all God's commandments lead us into life and joy and freedom, it's important that we, that we do this. Now, a disclaimer. This is not about the power of positive thinking. This is not about the, the thing that is so popular. If you want that, you can go to Barnes & Noble. They have like five aisles on that self-help stuff, okay? If you want to waste your money, that's, that's where you go. Now, some of you may have already wasted some money on the, the best-selling book, The Stupid. Uh, I mean, The Secret. Uh, or do I? <laughs> now, The Secret, it's, it, look, 
I don't mean to offend you, but as your pastor, it, it, part of my responsibility is to protect you from, from stupid, okay? Um, and, and things that you would feed into your heart and feed into your life that don't square up with the word of God. This is one of them. Basically, basically, okay, the, the secret makes your thoughts into your God. Uh, it, 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 it sort of uh, describes your thoughts as having this cosmic energy that goes out into the universe and then boomerangs back to you and, and you get whatever you think about and you picture. You notice that there are a lot of people who have a need and they will ask you to send, you, send them your positive thoughts. Send me your positive thoughts. Send them a double stuff Oreo cookie. It'll do about as much good and at least it'll taste good, right? Then pray for them. Another thing about the secret is, is, is what it says is that if you can think about a thing good enough, focus enough, visualize enough that you're driving a Ferrari Enzo, if you can visualize yourself behind the wheel, ultimately you're going to get it. Really? Really? Am I married to Farrah Fawcett? I visualized her poster from the age of 11 to 14. I got something better. All right, all right. What God is talking about is not the power of positive thinking. He's talking about something so much greater, so much more transcendent, so much more transforming. He's talking about nothing less than having the very mind of Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. With the coming of Christ, with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the Bible now says you have the mind of Christ at any given moment. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ can have his thoughts by his grace. And that is what we're talking about and nothing less. Last week we studied Philippians 4 through 8, uh, chapter 4, 4 through 8. Uh, We're going to take a look at that because we didn't get a chance to finish. So we'll start there. Um, let's read it through real quick. Picking it up in verse four, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And we talked about being aware in the mind of Christ of the nearness, the accessibility, and the willingness of God to, to be there and the readiness of God to act. And I think about when uh, our son Tommy was about, I would say, six five or six, and we had just moved here. Uh, no, so a little, little older, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit older. Uh, and he's going to bed, and I'm tucking him in and saying his prayers. Now, Tommy has two pillows on his bed. One is a nice feather pillow, and the other is this kind of cruddy couch pillow. Um, and I don't know why he's got it there. So his head is on the nice feather pillow, and we pray, and, and I kiss him goodnight, And he puts his head on the cruddy couch pillow. And I said, buddy, um, why are you taking your head off the good pillow and putting it on the cruddy couch pillow? And he said, because the good pillow is for Jesus. Now, he did a lot of lousy things. 
But not that night. That night, he had dialed in to the reality that we all need to not grow out of, which is the Lord is at hand. He is near. He is accessible. He is ready to act. And we're going to go on. We're going to get through this. Um, The Lord is at hand, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Get this. This is so beautiful. This is the peace of mind that so many people think about, discuss, but seldom experience. But we can. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which means it's mind-blowing will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is verse eight. This is what we didn't get to. Okay, the worry is gone. We live a life of continual trust, continual praise and thanksgiving, continual prayer. What do we replace it with? Verse eight, here we go. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever it is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is Paul getting at? What or who is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? Jesus, good answer. Good answer. Set your mind on that. And, and all the beautiful things in our life, you can think about that. You can think about your kids and your wife and your future and the giftedness and the creation that we've been set in. All those beautiful things. Maybe you love your job. I can't, I, I love this job. Okay. Um, all the beautiful things in your life need to point back. We need to take them back to their ultimate source. So even when we think about the beautiful things in our lives, we need to take them back to their ultimate source, Jesus. Because if we don't, if we don't, if that does not become our ultimate thought, then these beautiful things stop and they become our ultimate thought and that's idolatry. Here's the thing. Those beautiful things become more beautiful when we well up in praise to their ultimate source, Jesus Christ. And if we don't, there's a danger and those things become our idols, even good things, kids, family. Recreation, creation, money, our jobs, anything. Take it back to its ultimate source. Now going back um, to a little bit of last week, because obeying the command that we started off with in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That is such a beautiful, life-giving command. How much our God loves us to give us a command that would fill us with such joy. Be overflowing with joy to the Lord all the time. That's a command. And because that's so beautiful, because that's so life-transforming, we have an enemy that wants to steal that away from us. Okay? Does not want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Doesn't want that. He's going to do all he can. So we're going to turn, turn with me please, to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians, oh, rather 10, verse 4. Uh, 3, 3 through 5. I need, a, I, I need a sip while you get there. 2 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. Okay, got a lot in in my head. I got to calm down a a little bit. Let's read that together, and we're going to study it. Start in verse 3. I'm not hearing too many pages, so I guess most of us are there. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, to obey Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse three. The first thing we see is that we're in a war. We wage war, it says. We wage war. You say, I I didn't know I was in a war. We need to. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. And if you don't know you're in a war, chances are you're, you're a fatality. You're a casualty. So we want to look. We wage war. Okay, let's go back to four and five. There's a war being fought. Who's it for? It's ultimately for Jesus. What's it over? You. You. It's over you. And here's something I want you to dial into. We don't fight a war over things that are no value. We don't fight a war over things that are of no value. There are not wars breaking out over who's going to rule South Dakota. You get me? Anybody from South Dakota? No, I think we're good. I don't think we have anybody in South Dakota who listens to the podcast, do we? Well, if we did, we don't now. (laughs) Yeah. You are of ultimate value to God, although we don't deserve to be. And the war, because Jesus loves you, is being fought over you, over you. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, that Satan cannot steal you away from Christ. But what he can try to do is to steal away everything that Jesus wants to be in your life, everything he wants your life to be in him. And he does that. He does that to so many of us. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, you, by the way, you are so welcome here. This is a safe place where you can come get loved, come get encouraged, check out the faith. You are very welcome here. But if you were not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, then the stakes are so much higher. This war is so much more intense. And before we close, I'm going to get to how the enemy does that and how he may be doing that to you. Okay. So where is the battlefield? Verse 5. Verse 5. We take every thought, Captain. Where's the battlefield? It's right here. It's in your thoughts. It's in your mind. It's all in your head. When Satan wants to, wants to uh, take you away or draw your attention, your captivation, your obsession away from the most beautiful thing, which is Jesus Christ, he does it with your thoughts. This is the battlefield. This is where it's happening. And you know the truth of what the Bible speaks because there is not one of us that doesn't have thought problems. There is not one of us that does not have strongholds. Okay, that's where the battlefield is. That's where we're either going to attack or be attacked. That's where we're going to win or lose the battle. Okay, it's in our minds. So what are we battling? What are we battling? Well, um, if you're one of our fundamentalist friends, you probably think it's the liberal Democrats. It's not. It's not. Okay, what are we? Verse uh, Ephesians 6.12 tells us. The word of God tells us what we're battling against. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Not people. People are not the enemy. The captives are not the enemy. The captor is the enemy. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle. Let's stop making the people in captivity the enemy. The captor is the enemy. The captives are the ones who are to be set free by grace and love and truth and the blood of Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross. People in church have driven people away from Jesus by making the captives the enemy, and they are not. That may be a stronghold in your mind, okay? It's a spiritual battle against spiritual forces. Back to 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Satan's one, number one target in leading you away from Jesus is your thought life. The battle is won or lost right here. We did that. Satan is trying to captivate your mind with anything other than Jesus Christ, even good things. Because when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it's a bad thing. Verse four, what are our weapons? For the weapons of our warfare are not the fle- of the flesh, but have divine power. Now, If you watch lame movies like Legion, Constantine, uh, uh, Resident Evil, you be convinced that what we're to do in this battle is strap on a grenade launcher or stuff a Glock 9mm in your pants and we're just going to cap demons whenever we see them, right? Not going to work. To quote Tommy Boy, your weapons are useless against them, right? That's true. Of bees and demons. They don't have divine God-infused power. We're talking about something else. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about in Ephesians where it talks about putting on the full armor of God, the only weapon you have. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, His Holy Spirit, and, and, and the, the Bible, right? And constant prayer in that. That's your weapon. That's your weapon. So we don't, I just want to dismantle this a little bit. We don't have a quiet time because that's what good Christians do. Now, if you don't walk around in in church circles, a quiet time is our little lingo that we use uh, about waking up before anybody else in the house and getting together uh, with God in his word and and in prayer. And that's a beautiful great thing to do. But we don't do that because that's what good Christians do. Here's why we do it. We do it because we're, we're passionately in love with Jesus Christ and we long to spend time with him and grow closer to him. And because we need in him to load our weapons, we need to get our ammunition loaded up. Otherwise, you're going through the day shooting blanks. Wives, this is another good time not to look at your husband. So what is our target? Okay, that, that, that was probably not, not anointed. I'm a broken man. Aren't we all? So what's our target? What are we destroying? What are we going to blow up? My good friend and co-worker, Pam Johnston. There she is. Where are you, Pam? 
There you go. She has a son, Corbin. Many of you know him. He's at Mines. You know what he's studying? Explosive engineering. How cool is that? Yeah, anybody who was ever a seven-year-old boy knows that's cool, right? Because what seven-year-old boy didn't wake up in the morning saying, what am I going to blow up today? Now, if you're a seven-year-old boy, don't ever think that thought and, and claim that your pastor told you to do it. I'm going to deny it. But in the spiritual sense, let's think about what we're going to blow up today. What are we destroying? What are we destroying? Verse 4 tells us we're destroying strongholds. Power to destroy strongholds. What is a stronghold? Now, Paul's original audience was very familiar with uh, Roman military uh, oppression, occupation. It is a military term, means an encampment, a, a fortress where the enemy is dug in and defending this turf. Okay, that's a fortress, a stronghold. And uh, in the mind, it refers to wherever Satan has our minds captive, uh, our lives captive in a person, okay? A stronghold is an area of your life, your mind, your thoughts that has been imprisoned and defended and entrenched by Satan and his way of thinking, what are different kinds of common strongholds? Now, these are thought patterns. Uh, in most cases, these are things that you have dealt with for a very long period of time because strongholds are entrenched. And, and these are the things you say, well, that's just how I am. That's just how I am. That's how I, I think. And, and Jesus isn't calling you to that normalcy right? That's this whole no normal life thing. He's calling us to life abundant and free. And what are these uh, common ones? Uh, last week we talked about anxiety and worry. Some people say, well, I'm just a worrier. I just, uh, you know, I care so much. Well, worry is the antithesis of faith. Whatever you're worrying about, you're not believing and trusting Christ for. It is saying this problem or this potential problem is bigger than my God. It's been called practical atheism. It's living as if there was not a God, thinking as if there was not a God who loves you and is intervening and active in your life. It may be selfishness, thinking first about how is this thing going to affect me? How is this going to advance me? How is this going to inconvenience me? How is this going to um, happen in my life? What does this mean for me? Rather than saying, how does this thing exalt Jesus Christ? And how does this give me the opportunity to humble myself and serve and love the way he humbled himself to serve and love me? It may be selfishness. It may be worry or anxiety. It may be anger, fear, greed, bitterness, hanging on to something in the past that we've done, that somebody has done to us, some, some injustice, which may be wrong, which may be awful, which may be evil, which may have hurt, which may have left scars and wounds, but when we cling to it, it continues to hurt us and we don't release it in forgiveness at the throne of Jesus Christ. And, and that makes us bitter and hard. It may be self-righteousness. It may be your thoughts convincing you that you are unloved and unlovable, and that is a lie. I used to have a, a go to a church where, where a pastor would say, that's a lie, it smells like smoke, it comes from the pit of hell. I've always wanted to say that, but it's true. 
It's true. You are loved more than you can imagine. You're loved more than you have loved any other thing ever in your whole wide life. By many times over, by the God, Jesus Christ, who came and paid the penalty for your sin and mine on the cross in our place as our substitute so we could come home forgiven and free. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Be encouraged. Have hope. Lustful thoughts. I need to talk to the guys. Guys, this is huge. Whether you're religious or irreligious. Whether, you're, uh, whether you come to church a lot or whether you don't. We are visual creatures. Amen? Okay. Um, just some real frank talk. Porn is dangerous. It is dangerous because you do not just behold that image when it's on your screen. It gets burned into your mind. And Jesus says in his word, he says, although you have not committed adultery, when you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. And that happens first in our minds, right? And you know, you know, if you're honest, that you have certain images, whether there are people you know or people you don't that you have indulged in and gone back to, and they're very vivid, and you can recall them like that. And what's so dangerous about that is that whether you're married or whether you're single, they are creating a desire within you for a woman who is not your wife. Whether you're married or whether you're single, they create a sexual desire within you for a woman who is not or will not be your wife. That's why it's dangerous. Because our wives, whether we've met them yet or haven't, become the definition of beauty in our lives. They become the definition of what is beautiful in our lives. Read Song of Solomon. It's very, very clear. Anybody who doesn't look like this does not captivate my heart, does not captivate my mind does not captivate my life. And that's regardless of what she looks like. Only Jesus can give you that kind of love. Be very, very careful in this area. What John Piper has said uh, has been very helpful to me in this area of taking every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. He said, when lustful images come across the movie screen of my mind, what I have to do is the most powerful thing to me, he says. It's to envision the suffering of Christ that he endured to set me free from this. And you may have to do this if you're like uh, from 14 through 30. You might have to do this every 15 seconds. But a miraculous thing will start to happen. That will happen less and less and less until it is destroyed. You can have freedom. You can have victory. But you must take every thought captive. Make it a prisoner of war. And if it will not obey and submit to the thoughts of Christ, you must destroy it in his power. There are a lot of men, there are a lot of pastors, there are a lot of faithful churchgoers who, whether we know it or not, are struggling in this area far more than half, 
far more than half. And if you're a young man, those percentages are probably around 80%. You can have victory. That's the good news. I want to touch on one other thing. This is huge. Uh, A non-biblical worldview. Um, That can become a non-Jesus worldview. That can become a stronghold in our minds. A stronghold in our minds. When we understand this, you will see it over and over and over again in the news, in the community, in the nation, on the college campus. You're going to see it again and again and again. Right now, it's neo-paganism. And I'm going to explain that to you. Now, atheism, uh, the good news about that is it's dying in America. Okay? It's dying off. Why? Because the people who bought into atheism, the fact that there is no God, it did not give them the spiritual fix that in their hearts they sensed they needed. So what we have now is this neo-paganism. And here's what it does. It does two things. Number one, it is syncretistic. And what that means, if you hear that word, what it means is that it's a salad bar of faiths. You can take this from Christianity. You could take this from Buddhism. You could take this from Hindu. You could take just a salad bar of faith. You take what you want, right? You mix them up. You come up with the salad that most pleases you. Because all truth, it says, is equally inspired. Who are we to say? Well, we're not. The Bible says. The second thing that it does, the second thing that it does, and um, this is particularly uh, threatening, the people who are most vulnerable to this, well, all of us, but particularly those of you who enjoy yoga, which can be a great thing, or who are environmentally minded, which, again, can be a very good thing. But you're very susceptible to the second thing that it does, which is treat creation and the creator as the same thing. This sounds subtle. It isn't. This sounds trivial. It isn't. This is the essence of Romans 1.25. Bring that up for me, Ryan, please. This is what Paul talked about 2,000 years ago. Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature or the creation rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. Amen. You will see this again and again and again, turning creation and creator into one. Here's what it sounds like. Here's what it sounds like. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, if you're listening here, don't believe this. David Wagner writes, this is what it sounds like. When you are lost in the wilderness, stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Wherever you are is called here. You must ask permission to know it and to be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers and says, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. No. 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 
as beautiful as that poetry is. It is exactly what Paul was describing 2,000 years ago. And it turns the creation into the creator. When God is separate and distinct and all of those beautiful things are to point to him and when they don't, for us, they become idols. And if you're a hunter or you're a skier or you're a hiker or you're a mountain biker, those very things that draw us to them are drawing us to Christ. Let them have their intended effect. You must not let the forest find you and know it. You must let Jesus find you and know him. Although he created the tree, he is not the tree. Although he created the bush, he is not the bush. You must not listen to the forest. You must listen to one who created the forest for only in him can you have life and freedom and forgiveness. And, and I'm, not, I'm not coming down on you If you listen last week, there's such a beautiful vision of what Christ wants for us that we have to know all the things that that the enemy is using to steal that away. Because as we saw in the first week of No Normal Life Allowed when we were on campus, John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. How do we do that? We take inventory all the time. We think about what we're thinking about. We pay attention and we match that up and we measure it against the word of God and the spirit of God and the truth of the gospel and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't match, then in him, we cast it down. It's violent. It's immediate. It's strong and it's uncompromising. Guard your thoughts. God, the peace of God is standing guard. Tap into that and we can be free here. When we're free here, we become free here. And we're free in our hearts. We are free indeed in the sun. When the sun has set you free, you are free indeed. My father, we're gonna close. I know you've been here a long time. My dad, uh, I've already outlived him. Gosh, you're a young man. You outlived your dad. Yeah, I did. When he was 42, he was diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor. Uh, He lived for two years and two months. Immediately after he was diagnosed, he had brain surgery. And when they did that, they realized how vicious and aggressive this tumor was. And, And it progressively ate away at different parts of his brain. And he lost functions. He lost sexual function for uh, uh, immediately. And, and he and my mom had the most romantic, most intimate relationship of their lives, even in the midst of that. He lost, he's a, he was a very brilliant man. I, I guess it skips a generation. Um, um, and yet he had trouble speaking, not trouble thinking. His thoughts, his, his, that section of his brain was, was intact, but the part that translates that into speech he was very articulate, was, was dismantled. And when he had his second surgery, which was like a, a year and a half later, um, to see if we could get some quality of life, um, the surgeon called our family into his office while my dad was in recovery and explained that the surgery did not go very well. Um, these tentacles that the tumor had sent out um, had all but... Um, destroyed his ability to speak. 
he was now completely blind and mostly paralyzed. So a very capable, very high-functioning man who had endured suffering and loss and incredible frustration, he said, what happens now with the vast majority of people is because all of this bad stuff has happened to them. The only words that they can get out are profanity because that's kind of what's wired in. All that frustration comes out. And while he can think clearly, he knows who he is. He knows what he has always known. He can't express that. So just have patience with him when he speaks profanity over and over. So it's a term, uh, part of it is called aphasia, yeah? Yeah. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the midst of grief to have my dad cussing a blue streak around the house because uh, he had never done that. When my father came out of um, recovery, he was trying to form words to speak, and he could not. From the reservoir of this man who had experienced hurt and disappointment and suffer, suffering and loss, he was only able to say two words for the rest of his life, for the last six months. Praise God. Praise God. For the last six months of this debilitated life, when he wanted water, he said, praise God. When he wanted food, he said, praise God. When he wanted to say, I love you, he said, praise God. This atheist neurosurgeon said, praise God. The mind fully surrendered to Christ. We don't have to wait until six months before we check out to have that. It's available right here, right now. Right now. How do we do that? How do we do that? It's one of the most beautiful words in scripture. It's called repent. The only repent means, means to change your mind. Change your mind from where it is now to where God is calling it to be. To let him transform our minds, let him transform our hearts. So that's the prayer I, I plead with you to pray. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we told you, I told you that I would tell you that the stakes are higher. Here it is. It's in the same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Here's what the word of God says is happening. And even if our gospel is veiled, if it's hidden in any way, if it's invisible in any way, it's only to those who are perishing. And Paul doesn't write this in celebration. This is what Jesus desires to do. Verse four, in their case, the God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus, who is the very image of God. So I plead with you, 
if you're far from Christ, if you've never believed in him, trusted in him, received him as your Lord, as your Savior, pray a very brave prayer. Lord, heal the blindness of my mind and let me see you as you truly are in all your glory that I might receive you and live and live. Every one of us has a stronghold or more. It's time to wage war because victory is what God wants for all of us. And it's only found in Christ. And repentance is the door through which we go there. And the cross is what we trust. And, the, and Jesus, his finished work there, power of his blood. Doesn't matter how ugly the thoughts you've thought. Doesn't matter how long you've been thinking them. His message is, let me destroy that and replace it with my mind. You can be forgiven. You can be free. And that can happen right now. Let's pray.